Hey folks, this is Jerry. And I'm Allie. And before we start the podcast today, we thought we'd take a minute and tell you a little bit more about the boot camps. You know, I think as powerful as coaching can be, I was always frustrated by the kind of limitations implicit in a, even a regularly scheduled session. And I always wanted to go deeper. Having done a number of workshops in my own life and had uh, powerful immersive experiences, I knew that there was a benefit to spending the time to go deep. I also knew that there was a benefit to connecting with other people and maybe even arguably more benefit to connecting with other people than there was in actually going deep on the material. You know, the notion of sitting around at eight o'clock at night, having had a really powerful and transformative day with somebody and just talking about was always really important for me. So I wanted to provide that kind of experience. I also wanted to have an experience where people could both go deep on the process of learning the specifics of the job, but really being given the opportunity for what I always talk about is that radical self-inquiry, because I'm so interested in people learning to be human, um, and that the process of being is so much more powerful than the process of doing the job. So why don't you take a minute and tell us what's coming up in 2015 and what we're looking for. We have three events this year. We have our winter boot camp, February 25th to March 1st. A summer boot camp, which is our first co-founder boot camp, which will be in May. And our first ever boot camp 2.0, which we designed for our alums, which will be held in October on the two-year anniversary of our first ever boot camp. And I guess in the end, what we're just going to encourage people to do is to reach out, um, go to reboot.io slash bootcamp. Mm-hmm. And thanks for listening. And I guess we'll move on to the podcast now. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. I'm Dan Putt, one of the partners here at Reboot, and I could not be more excited about this conversation. We're here to showcase the heart and soul of authentic leadership, to inspire more open conversations around what we consider the most important part of entrepreneurship, the emotional struggle. And hopefully we open up some hearts along the way. We are extremely grateful that you've taken the time to be with us and look forward to this journey ahead with you. Now, on with our conversation. If a sadness rises in front of you, larger than anything you have ever seen, if an anxiety like light and cloud shadows moves over your hands in everything you do. You must realize that something is happening to you, that life has not forgotten you, that it holds you in his hand and will not let you fall. And that comes from Rilke, Austrian poet and novelist. After years and years of rapid growth and expansion, followed by a year of serious depression, Rand Fishkin, co-founder and former CEO of Moz, found himself in a room surrounded by fellow CEOs and entrepreneurs. 
where the question was posed, how many of you struggle seriously with depression or severe anxiety? He watched as almost every hand went up. It is shocking how universal depression is in startups. For anyone struggling with depression, it's so helpful to know that you are not alone. In this podcast, which is slightly different from past episodes, Jerry talks with Rand about his experience, about his struggles with his own loop, and how shame and guilt are at times his driver, the importance of understanding one's emotional state, and how Rand has made progress in coming through his own depression. He also shares one piece of advice for entrepreneurs or anyone dealing with their own depression. Now on with the conversation. My name is Rand Fishkin. I was formerly the CEO of Moz, which is a software startup focused on making marketing tools uh, primarily for SEO folks, but also a variety of other things. And we're based in Seattle, Washington. Uh, We started in 2004 as a blog and then in 2007 as sort of a more formal software business. We've raised a couple rounds of funding, uh, including from a mutual friend of ours who introduced us, Brad Feld from Foundry Group. And earlier this year, uh, in January, I stepped down as CEO. Uh, my new role is individual contributor, and I promoted our, our longtime COO, Sarah Bird, uh, whom I know you know as well, and who's doing a phenomenal job as, uh, as Maz's CEO. And part of, that, part of that story definitely centers around, I think, some of the topics that we're going to discuss today around um, depression and the pressures of founding a startup and of running a company and those kinds of things. Yeah. I, you know, my sense is that today's podcast is going to be a little bit different because typically what we've been doing is almost a version of a coaching session where we get into a dialogue about what they're struggling with. But in this case, I think what, we, what we're hoping to do is really explore the story behind uh, your challenge with depression and your decision to step down as CEO perhaps the relationship between those two, and, you know, where we are today. So yeah. take us back in time and take us, take us back to a little bit more of that story. Sure. So why don't we start in uh, 2012. Moz had had, you know, five years of what, what I consider pretty exceptional uh, growth, and I'm sure some of that was skill, some of it was also luck and timing and, and all the things that figure into a successful startup. Um, but at, at that time period, we went out and raised some money, uh, $18 million from, from Brad at Foundry, um, as well as participation from our existing investors, uh, Michelle Goldberg from Ignition Partners here in Seattle. And we had, I had uh, tremendous aspirations, mm-hmm. just... You know, I saw an incredible amount of opportunity, and Moz had a, you know, an impressive history of kind of executing on opportunity, doing a lot with a little, um, you know, building big, expansive projects that many people in software would tell you aren't really wise to commit to, and almost never worked out. Um, and we we were an exception to that rule. We'd had you know big launch after big launch after big launch, where projects had taken six months or a year to build, or even longer. And then come the launch day that we wanted, we were pretty close to having it ready. Maybe, you know, maybe slip by a few weeks or a month. So, <laughs> 
as you might imagine, where the story is going. And after raising funding, we thought we could keep doing that. So we grew our team pretty dramatically. I think there were about 60 of us when we raised money. That was in uh, May of 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, and a year later, there was a little more than 120 of us. So, wow. you know, huge amount of growth uh, in a short time period. And we took on some insanely challenging projects, um, kind of not just rebuilding the underpinnings of our software, but launching it with literally 10 times the number of new features and sections and all this kind of thing, um, which I think, you know, founders get excited about. We, we want to build things. We have ideas of what customers want. That launch was supposed to happen in early 2013, which slipped to the middle of 2013, which slipped to the end of 2013. Wow. Uh, I think we were just about a year delayed on a project that initially was going to take about seven or eight months. Mm -hmm. So that was that was pretty ugly. And then the launch itself went extremely poorly. You know, we because we put this artificial pressure on ourselves to get the product out there, it really wasn't ready for prime time um, from any perspective. It you know hadn't been well tested by our users, hadn't re really been very well validated, had lots of bugs inherent in it. And we kind of knew this, and we thought, well, we'll get out there, and then we'll fix all that stuff. Mm. Um, but once you get to our size, you know, we had, I think, uh, 21,000 paying subscribers. We, we basically just ended up really disappointing our existing customers and, um, you know, making ourselves look bad in the market, especially compared to some new competition that had entered and had more solo individual foci on specific areas. So it, it was a very, very tough time culturally internally at the company, uh, externally from a perception perspective, quality-wise, customer growth-wise. You know, we've been working off of 100% year-over-year growth for, well, six years in a row. And then all of a sudden we went down to, uh, I think, you know, this year as a result of last year, because SaaS is always kind of trailing. Yep. Um, this year as a result of what happened last year, we're going to grow maybe 12, 15 percent. Right. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of the. Is this why you decided to step down as CEO? Um, not not directly or exclusively, but I think it certainly had some impact on accelerating that timeline. Mm. And I, I can describe a little bit of that. So, you know, during this during this time period, um, I think especially towards the middle of last year, uh, I became someone that I didn't really recognize. Um, you know, I, I've always struggled with my personal happiness and with, um, you know, a, a very intense workload and, and commitment to Moz, um, but I could usually, in the past at least, um, have a healthy balance between self-criticism and company criticism and product criticism and optimism for the future and, you know, acceptance and happiness with some of the things that we had accomplished. And that, that pendulum just, you know, went from maybe a more healthy neutral position to a really, really unhealthy negative position. Um, <laughs> an example, if you ran into me uh, in 2013 and you said, Rand, I... I love what you guys at Moz have done with X and Y and Z. I would actually try to convince you that everything we had done was shit and you were wrong. Right. <laughs> Which is, right. That's, that's not exactly 
a great way to do marketing um, or evangelism (laughs) for your company. Um, And I think a lot of people uh, recognize that. And and I had this, there's that nagging voice in your head, right? There's Jiminy Cricket going, what what are you doing? You know this is wrong. You shouldn't do it. And and yet the negative portion of my head um, just wouldn't have it. Just wouldn't listen to any any data point that was positive, any person who was being positive internally or externally at the company, um, I just wouldn't couldn't abide it, uh, and felt the need to bring everyone down. Do you know why you were so negative? Um, so at at this point, I actually think it was. Um, uh, I'm not sure how formal or how precisely, but I think it was a case of um, depression, right? I think it was a a mental and emotional area. I suspect there was probably some brain chemistry changes too. Um, And the reason that I feel that way now but couldn't identify it when I was inside it, at least not not truly in an accepting cognitive way, is because what the switch did flip um, probably, uh, you know, autumn of this year or early autumn of this year that the switch kind of flipped and I I now feel like another different person like the person that I was previously and I look at my actions and emails that I wrote and things that I said and I think God, that, that guy was crazy what happened to him mm-hmm. I, re- I, I relate to that feeling I remember coming out of my own depression it was the last major depression period was from 2002 through about 2006, really the start of 2006 into 2007. And I remember describing it as coming home to a house that I previously occupied but still feels unfamiliar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like that analogy. You know. And also going, wait, who where? fucked up all this furniture? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where have I been? You know, this, this person. Um, so, was the decision to step down prompted by the failures in execution, or was the, were the failures of execution a prompt for the depression? I think, I think it's very hard for me to say whether some of the failures of execution were related to the depression itself. Um, I, there are decisions that I look back at that Ma's made that don't strike me as logical or reasonable and seem to be, um, on reflection, the you know, poor decision-making, the rambling of a, of a depressed person, me. Mm. But it's hard to know for certain. It's possible that some of those early decisions which were made in a totally rational way but were the wrong ones uh, led to... You know some of that frustration and failure, which then spiraled down into, you know, the emotional problems that that I encountered and the and the weird mindset that I entered. Um, it is absolutely the case that uh, we had been talking even before I had gotten depressed and before Moz's, um, you know, sort of product challenges and growth challenges, uh, that I, I wanted to eventually have Sarah become CEO of Moz. We'd, we'd been talking about that for, 
I think a good few years and more seriously in the last 12 or 18 months prior. Um, but we hadn't established a timeline, right? We had talked about a few years from now, not a few months from now or a year from now. Uh, and it was really, I think, the, the depression and the negativity, the, you know, altered decision-making and altered rational uh, thought, uh, non-rational thought, that made our board, and specifically Brad, say, hey, maybe we should accelerate this timeline. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say Brad nudged, but he didn't force, mm -hmm. right? So he, he said, hey, I don't think you're happy. I don't think the you know, state of mind that you're in is helping Moz succeed. I will support you, and I love you, and I, if you want to be CEO going forward, I've got your back, I'm with you, we'll do whatever we can, but we've been talking about this change, maybe now is actually a really good time to make it. What was that so, like to hear that from him? You know, at the time, it was mostly relieving. Mm. I, um, I felt like Sarah could do a very, you know, a very competent and capable job. I did feel, I had at least some self-awareness to know that whatever was going on with me was very unhealthy. Um, I even thought that maybe I would leave the company in the next little while and do something different. Um, yeah, so it, it was, it was mostly a relief. I think the, that being said, the reality, um, of when we did make the CEO change in, in January was actually very hard on me as well. And I, um, you know, these, <laughs> let's, let's be totally honest. We're, we're talking about some very first world problems here, right? Like a lot of startups would go, wait, you didn't have to do layoffs. You didn't have to cut back on spending. You just grew slower, and that made you depressed. What you know? Get, get serious here. This is you're just you're crazy to think that this is the the worst thing in the world. Um, but what can I say? Around my psyche and my expectations, I I felt abject failure and real disappointment in myself. Um, and in, in what Moz was doing. And so, so I, I'm going to suggest you pause on that just for a moment because I think you're eliciting or expressing a really important point, which is that others' view of our success or failure can influence us, but in the end, it's how we view our success or failure that matters. And I noted your, oh, first world problem, self-critical assertion. And, 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 you know, I'm your former coach, so I'm, I can't help it. I'm going to slip back into coach mode for a moment. The thing that I've come to understand is that the existence of somebody else's existential pain and suffering doesn't diminish our existential suffering or pain. It, except in this way. Except in the way, except when we understand empathetically and we use the acknowledgement of that pain as a means of generating compassion hmm. to know that we're not alone. Yeah. And so the fact that there are 
people suffering somewhere else, physical pain, existential pain, layoffs, doesn't diminish, even, even if the rational mind tells you it should diminish it, it doesn't do anything. And to then layer on top of that a self-criticism that says, I shouldn't feel bad, creates this kind of shame <laughs> about being depressed. Well, you, you know me well enough to know that shame and guilt are my primary drivers in life. That's, uh, that's the engine. That's my fossil fuels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you think there was a relationship between the shame and the guilt and the depression? Oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh! So, you know, one of the one of the blog posts that I wrote around this time um, was a post called "Can't Sleep Caught in the Loop," and I I had this uh, recurring almost every day, every night mental pattern um, that I started calling the loop or my loop, uh, and it was essentially, you know trying to analyze what we had done wrong, trying to figure out what we needed to do to get better, getting caught in a uh, mental pattern of thinking, there's no way that I can fix this. Uh, all of these ideas that are floating around in my head are no good. Let me try and come up with some more. No, here's why those won't work. Uh, God is depressing that none of these will work. Mm. I should just leave. Maybe if I started again, I could get a company that would actually work. And, you know, just that, that cycle, that spiral, um, that, it was a horrible feeling. I, I can't tell you how many times I, you know, crawl into bed at 1 or 2 a.m. and look at the clock and it's 4 a.m. And for three hours, all I've been doing is looping mm. on that same thing over and over. It actually, uh, even now, I'll, I'll catch myself occasionally thinking, Hey, what can we do to fix this? Or what's this problem? And, and I, I now at least have the, um, I don't know what it is, mental resources, emotional resources to be able to just stop myself and go, no, you know what? Let's think instead about that vacation we took in Italy last year. I, I'm going to think about that instead. That's, uh, that's something I can focus on. Yeah. Or, hey, let's think about uh, this call I'm going to have with Jerry tomorrow. It'll be really good to talk to him. wonder what he's been up to. So, I, I've gotten better about it. I can get out of the loop. Um, but during the Depression, I, I really could not. Yeah, I, I think your your description is so poignant and apt. You know, I've been in the loop myself. And, it, you know, for me, it loops between anxiety about the future and rumination about the past. And I flip back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and you know, it took a long time to, to realize that more thinking doesn't actually get you out of the loop. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, and it's, uh, it's being able to pause and step back and notice the, the loop itself. There's something powerful in being able to identify the loop because if you think about it for a moment, Rand, there's almost like a third eye that steps in and says, Rand, you're trapped in the loop. Right, because Ugh. because that's a different level of consciousness than the level of consciousness that's trapped in the loop, and I think the ability to cultivate that for me was a powerful capacity. I mean, you know, I often speak about meditation, and I think people make a mistake in thinking that meditation is about not thinking, when it's actually about observing 
the tumultuous looping mind hmm. that is caught between rumination and anxious anticipation of the future and not being able to get out of that. Yeah, I think well, while I agree that was that is um, a powerful skill to learn, I think I actually found a tremendous amount of um, frustration and sadness and anger in uh, you know talking to um, I, I worked with a, a, a professional coach and, and therapist um, you know after after we stopped working together at, at your recommendation and um, you know got some nice praise for self awareness and and those kinds of things and that actually made me feel worse like oh great this is supposed to be a solution or this is supposed to be helpful in this process and I can self-identify the loop and I still can't break out of it, mm. I must be royally screwed, right? Mm. Like I'm so deep in it, even self-awareness, even identification of the pattern, even the third eye looking outside itself isn't helping me break out. Mm. Uh, and that was, that, that was another really frustrating thing. I think. Yeah, I, th I, I think you, you poignantly articulate yet another aspect, which is that when we're in that depressed state, we can use almost anything, anything, as further evidence of how fucked up we are. <laughs> yes. Right? Fuck, the sun is shining. What an asshole I am. How come I can't feel good? Yeah. Right? Or, damn, it's raining. It always rains when I feel sad. Right? I mean, we can use, when we're in that state, we can use anything as further evidence of how terrible we are. You, you are so right. I mean, I, I remember, I mentioned we, Geraldine and I went on this vacation to Italy. We uh, saw some of her family who's there. She's, she's first generation, and um, she still has a lot of family in southern Italy. I remember going and visiting uh, these gardens on the Amalfi Coast and thinking to myself, you know, this is incredibly beautiful. Why can't I make anything beautiful? Why can't, uh... <laughs> why can't, why can't I create something good? Every, every good thing I looked at uh, from any perspective, go to a good restaurant, you know, um, um, see a, a store that carries really nice men's clothing, and I think, God damn it, why can't I make something nice? I just want to be able to make something good, um, something I can be proud of. I, I think that was actually a huge part of my cycle was believing that nothing I had done was good and that I couldn't make anything good. And so seeing, seeing good things um, just kept reinforcing that, which is now sounds insane, but I, I, think, I think lots of people who are locked in that, and especially after publishing a few posts about depression, especially the one about coming out, I mean, I got a flood of email um, and, and you know, private messages and people chatting with me about it. And I, I think that was, that was something so many people identified to me that, that was similar for them. Yeah. My friend Parker Palmer, who I often quote and, and uh, collaborate with, I remember listening to a, a talk he did on one of the Sounds True recordings, and he described the fruitlessness of others cheerleading. You know, Rand, come on, cheer up. You've accomplished so much. Or, come on, let's go outside and get, get a breath of fresh air. It's going to help. When, again, in that depressed state, it becomes more fuel for what's wrong with me. 
what's wrong with me that I can enjoy a walk? What's wrong with me that I can't break out of this loop? And, and, and the cycle sort of beats on, beats on. Can I bring you to something that you that you wrote in in the blog post that really spawned this? Yeah. And the blog post was I think it's called the long ugly year of depression that's finally fading. Yeah. You said um, people say it takes a big person to admit mistakes and admit that they don't have what it takes to lead. I don't feel very big. In fact, I feel like what my dad always told me I was a high potential low achiever kind of kid. What was that about? Um, well, I, I, I think you can actually take that extremely literally. That's, that's how I meant it. I, I did not feel like, and I still don't necessarily feel like um, admitting my mistakes or being able to own up to them um, or making changes like you know, stepping down from the CEO role and putting Sarah in charge, um, focusing on some of my strengths. I don't, for some reason, I don't actually feel like those make me better or more praiseworthy, um, except if they lead to Moz doing better things. And I, I think I'm seeing that, and, and I hope, I feel pretty optimistic about that at, at this point. Um, and I, I think part of that is I can recognize those aspects in other people, and I give other people praise for all of these things which for which I deny myself any praise or any value. I know that's that sounds like a wholly logical statement, but I think this is true for a lot of people who you know for some reason feel uh, compelled and driven to achieve far beyond what is reasonable or normal or expected um, from, from human beings. And, and, and I'd include that in the entrepreneurship realm and in the physical realm and, and all sorts of realms. So uh, I, this, is, this is one point that's important. So I remember we, I had dinner with Brad and with the rest of our exec team after a board meeting, and he called out that, that particular piece, right, that high potential, low achiever thing. And he said... Um, you know, what makes you think that, you know, your dad's opinion about how you were when you were a teenager or a kid has any value? Like, what, why are you carrying that around with you? Mm. Um, and I said, and I, I really believe this, I think my dad actually was pretty wrong about a lot of things and still is. Mm. Uh, I don't have a particularly high value of his opinions. Um, I think he was accidentally right about that. Not, not, you know, most of the stuff he says I think is crazy, but mm-hmm. in that particular case, I, I, I sort of agree. I, I think that I could do more. I think that if I could manage my emotions and mental state better, I could have been a great CEO for a few more years, if not indefinitely. Um, I think if I could be a little less uh, overly sensitive to... You know, these, some of the peculiarities that I hold, some of the beliefs that I hold that aren't necessarily helpful, I could achieve greater things, better things. Um, I think I have the capacity, I just haven't executed. And that, that continues to frustrate me 
uh, I think that'll always be a driver for me, kind of believing that I'm not good enough. Guilt and shame as a fuel. Yeah. Not being good enough as a driver. I mean, I, I'm not arguing it's healthy, but it, I, you know, maybe it's childish to say it sort of is what it is. I think that um, without judging the thoughts themselves, my wish for you would be to spend some time looking at the relationship between the belief that you're a, what did he call it? High potential, low achiever. Yeah. Guilt and shame as a driver. The belief that you'll never be good enough. And the depression. Well, I, so this is the non-depression part, which is I have a belief that I might be good enough someday. That if I can improve, I can get to a point where I'll feel, um, if not wholly proud of my accomplishments, at least satisfied. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have had moments of those, sparks of those. I, mm-hmm. you know, I can recall a few times we've, you know, built something, or I've given a presentation, or um, published something, or helped someone in a way that felt like that. I want more of that. I feel like I lived up to my potential there. I want to do that again. Um, so it's. You know, when I consider what has been done to date, I feel unsatisfied, but I have had moments of that satisfaction. I want to repeat that. I want to grow into consistently achieving those kinds of things. We've talked in the past, so I know a little bit about your relationship. What if Geraldine, your wife, said to you, I'm not good enough because I haven't accomplished fill in the blank? And, and she does. <laughs> and what do you say in response to that? Um, You're right. We talk about uh, a few things. One, things that she has done that have made her feel good and satisfied and happy. And also the fact that she's on that path, right? That, that you know, a few of her wildest dreams, she always wanted to publish a book. She's on the cusp of it. Mm-hmm. You know, she always wanted to be a writer as a career. She, she is a writer. You know, that's, that's her career. And she's read by, you know, uh, a million people every year. Uh, so thanks to the success. In your process. eyes, is she good enough? Oh, absolutely. I mean, more than good enough. Right. And in, in her eyes, I am also more than good enough. I, I don't think either of us uh, have the same or anyone externally have the same demands that, that we place on ourselves. I think that's true for a lot of people who achieve things. I think the challenge is how do we hold on to the positive attributes without sinking into a self-loathing, self-criticism? Yeah. And confusing aspirational goals with self-criticism. I think that's the challenge. I, I wholly agree. I think it's often such a such a fine line uh, and such a challenge to alternate between the you know leveraging the not good enough as a driver to do things and as a motivation 
Um, and it can be a very powerful motivation because it's so intrinsic, right? It's not, there's nothing, there's not somebody else pushing you. It's, it's merely yourself. I think we can be our own best engines for that. But um, I, I agree that's a huge challenge. I don't think that's something I've solved at all. But I'm, I'm 35. I have a, I have a lot of time ahead of me to, to try and uh, figure that out. I'm, I'm yeah. Like, and, yeah. And I appreciate the humor and the love, the self-love implicit in that I'm 35 and I have a lot of time to figure it out. You know, what I have found in my own life is there's a, there's a, there's a wonderful stance between acceptance of who I am and a wish to grow and a wish to do more. And sometimes that wish to do more compels me to act in ways that are actually against my best interest. And sometimes it, it compels me to do things that are extraordinary, like launch a podcast series when I've got more than enough work to do in my life. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and this leads, I guess, in a way to, to a core question that I'm interested in exploring is, because a lot of people will ask me this question, and I'm curious to hear your answer to this question. Is there a relationship? What is the relationship between depression and entrepreneurship? Um, I think there is a higher than normal correlation. You know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. I think, I think I'm allowed to give this example. And if I'm not, I'll find out later. Uh, <laughs> but um, Brad asked me to run the Foundry CEO Summit. You know, I'm, I'm no longer a CEO, but I, I had run it once before, and they liked what I had done with it, so I, I ran it again. This was in, um, in September. Uh, actually, it was the day after I published that blog post mm. about a, a long year of depression. And uh, at the very end, we had kind of an hour to discuss all together, um, all the CEOs from across the um, you know, stages of company and company type and that kind of thing, uh, to discuss personal and emotional issues uh, around being CEO, being founder. Um, and I remember uh, so distinctly Brad saying, you know, how many of you struggle seriously with uh, depression or have struggled seriously with depression uh, or severe anxiety and emotional issues? You know, really, really severe, identifiable and he asked people to raise their hand. I think there was about maybe 20, 22, 23 of the 60 or so CEOs that, that are in the Foundry portfolio in the room, and um, almost every person raised their hand. Mm. Almost every person raised their hand. And they, we, we all had you know, different stories to sh share, and plenty were more severe than, mm. than my story. Right. Um, I, and and I, re I recall this, too. So Sarah was in the room, right? Moz's CEO, and uh, she she did not raise her hand, um, which I think is totally honest. As long as I've known her, she's she's always just been she feels uh, empowered by problems. Right? Mm. That's what she loves going to work to do to solve problems. And I I remember the look on her face. I'll never forget it. Just this <laughs> surprise and shock. <laughs> yeah, like. How do you all live your lives? How is it possible that you founded companies? How can you build anything? Who are you people, right? That, that kind of just incredulity. And I don't know exactly what the questions she was asking herself in her head were, but, uh, but, but that look of shock and surprise um, 
was kind of delightful to me, right? Because I think, I think Sarah had been a little weirded out by my depression and, and um, the issues that I struggled with. Uh, and it was actually, I, I think, helpful for her and for our relationship and for all the CEOs in the room to see how incredibly not alone we were, right? How, how well-correlated entrepreneurship and funding, or, you know, m- maybe the correlation is between Brad Feld gives you money. And- <laughs> <laughs> Brad, Brad just seeking out depressed people to fund. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just Brad, right? I mean, Jason and right. Seth and Ryan, like, clearly these guys are... <laughs> Well, I, I think you hit upon, you know, a really important and maybe one of our final points, which is, you know, how important it is to know that you're not alone. You know, I, I've often shared that, that when I first start working with a client and I start to identify uh, and help them express their, their feelings, they're oftentimes shocked in, in some ways the way Sarah, you describe Sarah as being shocked. They're shocked at how universal those feelings are. And, you know, I think that that's a beautiful thing because it normalizes, doesn't romanticize it, but it normalizes it. And as we were saying before, one of the challenges of being in the depressed loop is to think that in your aloneness, which is, it's natural to feel that it's it's evidence of how screwed up you are. And to realize that it's part of the human condition to feel anxious. It's part of the human condition, especially those of us who place our passions and our love into the outcomes of what we do, to be susceptible to kind of like wearing our hearts outside of our body, to be so susceptible to what goes on. And so developing the tools and the resiliency to be able to, to, to withstand that I think is key. I guess the last question I would ask you and, 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 is if you could identify one piece of advice that you would give someone who's struggling right now, what would it be? Um, this, I'm worried that you're going to tell me that this is bad advice, and you, that's fine. So if, if, you, if you think that I'm giving a poor example, that, that's okay. Uh, but one of the things that I weirdly found helpful for me, even though even though this let me wallow in my depression a little bit, was hanging out with other like-minded folks. Um, so, you know, there's a, I, I'm not going to out him because I don't know mm-hmm. if I need permission to, but there's another entrepreneur in Seattle who went through just a really rough time with mm-hmm. his business. And, um, you know, we'd become good friends over the, over a few years. And uh, I, I really liked spending time with him, e- even though we were sort of both in that, a little bit to a lot bit depressed state and talking about, you know, how all these other founders and CEOs were just having these remarkable successes. And, Uh, you know, Rand, I'm going to interrupt you. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. One of the most important things, one of the reasons why we started the boot camps, one of the reasons we've started this thing called facilitated peer support groups is because I think you should hang out with people who are going through similar experiences. I think, being in community with people who can empathize with what you're going through, even if they don't have any answers, right. and, yeah. and, and they will resist the cheerleading. That, yes, yes. 
right? really, I really appreciated that, right? I'd hang out with other entrepreneurs, and they're like, you're going to get through this, man. Moz is amazing. You guys are kicking ass. You just don't realize it. Ugh. Right. I don't know why, but that sucked energy from me, and I know that their intent was to give it to me. Right, right. But, no, I actually think your advice makes perfect sense to me. So, unfortunately, we need to break, but I can't thank you enough for this. I think oh. your, your, your bravery... Your honesty, um, you know, as we were talking at the start, you know, the more that we all can model uh, talking about this, the more we can sort of overcome the shame that people often feel. Yeah. You know, we're not going to romanticize this, but we're going to make it normal, you know. Yeah, and I, I very much appreciate, you know, all of your efforts from the CEO book, boot camp to the coaching that you do to this podcast and all of the content that you create um, for helping to normalize this among the entrepreneurial community. It, it, it didn't just help me. I know plenty of other people that it's helped significantly, and I'm, um, I'm honored. I'm thrilled that I get to contribute in a small way uh, mm-hmm. to that project. You know, I've always been passionate about helping people understand SEO, and it, I, I love what you're doing to help people understand their emotional state, and especially the emotional states of, of founders and entrepreneurs and, and executives. Well, when you're, when you're done messing around with this crappy entrepreneur stuff, I'll train oh. you to be a coach, yeah. and you come join Reboot. Uh, <laughs> right. good, good to know. Uh, get a few more gray hairs between now and then. Uh, you got it. You got it. My friend, I love this, and I just want to let you know that I love you, and I care about you, and um, thank you so much for this. It was really a delight to talk with you. Right back at you, Jerry. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Be well, my friend. So that's it for our conversation today. I know a lot was covered in this episode from links to books, to quotes, to images. So we went ahead and compiled all that and put it on our site at reboot.io slash podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can find out about that on our site as well. I'm really grateful that you took the time to listen. If you enjoyed the show and you want to get all the latest episodes as we release them, head over to iTunes and subscribe. And while you're there, it would be great if you could leave us a review, letting us know how the show affected you. So thank you again for listening, and I really look forward to future conversations together.